Hotel Mario is seen by modern audiences as an awful game. One of the worst Mario games of all time, if not one of the worst games, period. But when it was released in April of 1994, it was somewhat of an anomaly. It was a Mario game on a console that didn't belong to Nintendo. The Philips CDI of all things. And it was a Mario with cutscenes, where Mario actually talked. All things that were special at the time, and not seen in a Mario game for a little bit of time after that. So how did Hotel Mario come to be? How did Mario end up so drastically different on a console that virtually no one owned? Well, we'll talk about that today and more as we take today's trip down memory card lane. Good afternoon and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 84th episode of our video game nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we take a look back at one game relevant to the current week of gaming history and we talk about it. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. This week, we are looking back at Hotel Mario, released for the Philips CDI on April 5th, 1994. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who always tries to check in a little too early whenever he visits any hotel, my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, you know they have check-in times for a reason, right? Well, yeah, but if I'm already there, like, can't you just let me in a little bit early so I can set my stuff down and not have to worry about keeping it in while I go explore the city? Come on. Let me in! I, that's when you said let me in. I, I think of that meme, you know, the Andre theme, Eric Andre. Let me in! You know what I'm talking about? No, Dave, uh, I think your uh, your age is uh, showing here. No, 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 no. That's what all the cool kids are into right now, I don't right? know. I swear. I don't know, Dave. I swear, cool kids. Let me in. Right? Whatever you say. I mean, I could I could go with, like, you know, Roger Roger, or do you like Gladiator Fights, Timmy? That'd be dating myself a little bit. Why would you date yourself? Yeah, I know. I'm narcissistic. I, I wouldn't be attracted to myself anyways. Nobody is. Uh, hey, what are you playing these days? <laughs> Well, Dave, uh, you know, we got a little bit of that RuneScape grind going on. Been playing a little bit of Car Mechanic Simulator, getting to fix up cars and make them all party and fast. A uh, little bit of Yu-Gi-Oh! Master Duel. And naturally, Rocket League. Right on. How about yourself? I played... What did I play this week? Rocket League would have to have played a little bit of Forza. Played some... The first set of puzzles on a game called The Pedestrian. Hmm. And I played through the first, let's say, three stages. Kind of the prologue of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. So, that was... That is... That that's that Rocket League. Did I say Rocket League? I probably said Rocket League. I'm pretty sure you said Rocket League. Always Rocket League. <clears throat> but yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So you know, I'm 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 heard a lot of good things about Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, it was bought for me as a Christmas gift for one of my best friends, and so here we are, finally getting around to playing it, and it is uh, so far so good. It's really amusing. I was worried in the beginning because it's not the characters that we're used to like they don't look or sound like the movie guardians and you know people say don't worry about it you'll get past it and they're absolutely right like you don't even you don't even so i mean that's uh, the case with a lot of games that are adapted from movies very true the soundtrack is killer on it though it's got it's got the soundtrack <clears throat> pretty much from the guardians and, oh nice uh, it, it's awesome it's a it's a great soundtrack well, definitely going to have to check that one out myself. Uh, the start of the game starts in like the 80s and you're sitting on your bed, like looking around your room 
and at one point you p- you pick up your Walkman and you have the option to like press the buttons on the Walkman. Uh, you know, it's like a set cassette tape player Walkman. And so I like rewound the tape and Lacey and I were cracking up because here I am in a video game doing this, this crap that I did as we were doing as kids. It's like, oh my God, we're that old. (laughs) Rewind, play, rewind. It was kind of funny. That is pretty funny, Dave. So, well, today we're looking at Hotel Mario, which is, I'm, you have, as I understand, some stuff to say about it, which is great. Um, but I thought that we would start by talking about the CDI, the Philips CDI. I don't think that we've ever covered the Philips CDI before talking about it last week when we did the seventh guest, right? Yeah, no, that was the first I'd heard of it. So you have no clue what the CDI is? Uh, No, it's not a format that I'm familiar with, honestly. It's foreign. Yeah, yeah, were CDs even really a thing for you? Or did you kind of come in past that phase? No, I, I played a lot of uh, PC games. Play, PlayStation on, stuff. Well, PlayStation and all those too. But as far as just actual CDs, I played a lot on the computer. I mean, my Battlefields all were on there. 1942, 2142, the Vietnams. I um, think those were DVDs, to be honest with you. But I really? get what you're saying. So yeah, Maybe you're right. Uh, maybe uh, maybe not. I do have the... a lot of CDs for my music collection. Got well, that's kind of that, that's kind of well, more or less what I was asking. Yeah, no, I I I have probably I'm looking at twenty CDs above my bed right now. Gotcha. All right. So CD so compact discs are not foreign foreign to you. So. No, not at all. Not at all. I used to actually have a CD player that I carried around with me as a kid. Nice. I still have a CD. I still have a binder full of CDs in my car. Because I drive out in the middle of nowhere quite often where I don't get a phone signal. And therefore, my streaming on my phone doesn't work very well. So I keep CDs in my car for when that happens. Uh, see, it's, you keep phones on your, your songs on your phone and then plug your phone into your car. Boom. Now you're charging your phone and getting your music on. Well, I mean, I mostly stream through Pandora or Spotify or something like that. So I don't, I don't do much storage. I don't, I don't have any songs on my phone, actually. Uh, and when and when I don't need it, I have a I have a CD collection in my car. It works just fine. Well, Dave, enough about CDs. What the heck is CDI? No, well, that's exactly what a CDI is. So not enough about CDs because we're sticking with it for a while. Well, I mean, yeah. switching yeah, yeah. from just CD to CDI. Come on, Mister Technical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so. Back way back the year I was born, 1984, which, uh, if you'd believe it, was just two years after the launch of the compact disc, uh, or as we were just talking about CDs. Now, CDs weren't more, you know, they were more popular in the 90s, but they were invented in the early 80s. Uh, So 1986, here we are, or 84, rather, two years after the launch of the CD, Sony and Philips collectively announced that they were developing what they called the compact disc interactive format so cdi was exactly what it would seem to be it was a definition for interactive multimedia compact discs that would play in specific cdi players now cdi discs are exactly the same physically as music cds they don't look any different but because of the format they could hold slightly more data on it And this allowed them to hold video, which was by definition up to 72 minutes of full motion video. Now, this is 1984 when, you know, we were just talking about DVDs. DVDs wouldn't come, DVD would not come out or be invented for 10 more years, 93 or 94, if I'm not mistaken. So the concept of storing video on a disc as opposed to a VHS tape, which is what we were using at the time was a really, really big deal. Um, We, I think nowadays we take for granted, we have streaming, we have, you know, if you do do discs, you have Blu-ray or DVD, but back then optical, what they call optical, this is optical data storage. It didn't exist at all. So the announcement that there was going to be video on a disc was honestly a really big deal. Now, early on, 
Sony and Philips really only looked to initially impact what they call the uh, educational or training market along with the point and sale market. Um, and then later on the home entertainment industries. And that makes sense because when technology comes out, it's typically adopted by the businesses first, you know, and then eventually things start to trickle to home entertainment industries. So 1984, they all announce, you know, that we're going to do the CDI format and away we go. Now, for whatever reason, within a couple of years, Sony would kind of drift off the format. And, and so Philips would kind of take up the heavy lifting. Now, Philips had really intended to develop the format to introduce, as it was called, interactive multimedia combat. To, co- combat? That's about right, right? Yeah. Hmm. They wanted to introduce interactive multimedia content to the general public by combining the features of a CD-ROM player and a game console. So, you know, can play games on this, but at a lower price than a PC that actually had a CD-ROM drive. We've kind of talked about other things that have done that before, like the Pico and the, um, oh God, what was Apple's little attempt at it for a hot minute? Pixos? I don't remember. I have no idea. We vaguely talked about a system, Atmos or something like that, um, when we were talking about Parappa the Rapper, because that guy who... That guy who made Parappa first developed for the Pit Mark. I think it was the Pit Mark. That system first. So, you know, this is all these companies think that they can build video game consoles or basically little computers for less than an actual computer and therefore get themselves into the market. Um, so, yeah. So it wasn't until four years later in 1988 that development kits for the CDI format began to be released to developers. And it was seven years later in 1991 that the first CDI player for home consumers was released. Now the first one that was released was called the CDI 910 made by Philips and it retailed for about $1,000 in 1991 dollars, which is about $1,900 today. Can you imagine uh, like adopting new technology for $1,900? Uh, I, I, I mean, can't. I can't. Consider laptops, computers. They're... I mean, these aren't computers, though. It'd be like... I, I mean, come on, let's be honest. The iPads weren't even that much when they were first adopted. Oh, heck no, they weren't. Blu-ray players weren't that much when they were first adopted. I don't know of really any technology that was that expensive when it's first adopted nowadays. So the Other thought of televisions, even new televisions. Well, okay. When I the may curb give you, market first came yeah, out. They were, I may, I may give you that. So all in all through the lifespan of the CDI format, they released 208 games to play on a CDI player of some kind. Now this wasn't, these aren't really like game consoles the way you and I think of game consoles. These are think of it more like an interactive movie for the most part, where like you you use your DVD and you're in most cases we're used to it on DVD, right? So you use your DVD controller to like figure out where it goes and and stuff like that. That's that's how a lot of people played CDI titles because um, they were they were like interactive movies for the most part. A lot of the games that were established for the CDI were full motion games. You know, we've kind of vaguely talked about Dragon's Lair in the past, which I is a great game. Mad Dog McCree, one of the earliest full motion video games, were among them. We know from last week's episode that The Seventh Guest was among them. If you'd like to listen to it, go to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Bam! Nice. Uh, there are plenty of what we call edutainment titles. We know that term. We covered that with, I think, SimCity, uh, such as a Berenstein Bears game, some Mother Goose games. Um, I, there's some counting stuff, you know, educational titles. Many of your popular game shows had CDI titles. There was a Jeopardy title, Name That Tune was one of them. The Joker's Wild had two versions. There was a children's version and an adult version. But it also... The CDI also had some really infamous games, too, like Hotel Mario, which is what we're talking about today. 
But I think before we get there, what we really need to talk about is how a Nintendo game found its way on the Philips CDI format. Because, and we've established this time and time again, that until really recently, Nintendo was notorious for not allowing their characters or franchises to end up anywhere but Nintendo consoles. So the question comes up, how did a Mario game end up on a Philips CDI machine? Not not just another console, but one that's virtually not known. How'd you get a Mario game there? How did you get a Mario game that ends up being one of the worst games ever? Because Nintendo is pretty well known for their quality control. We've covered their Nintendo seal, seal of approval lately, right? And so we know them to be we know them to be very protective of their franchises. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, some games have even gotten by Nintendo. Like what? Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it is a Legend of Zelda game that is, I think it was actually CDI as well. Oh, there are three Legend of Zelda games on this system that are infamous too. Uh, we're basically going to cover it now. We're going to cover the story about how all of them ended up on here. But aside from these CDI games, what other games, Mario, Zelda, or really any other popular Nintendo franchise ended up anywhere else? Do you know of any? <laughs> no, I can't think of any. No, it it was it was not a thing. It is it's not a thing in any way, shape, or form, even to this day. You know, when we got Super Mario Kart and Mario Run on the iPhones, that was pretty amazing, to be honest with you, because those were Mario games and, you know, on a non-Mario console, non-Nintendo well, console. more examples, Dave. You found them yourself. Oh, well, I mean, I, those are modern. I was That's what I was saying. Until modern times, Nintendo didn't allow it. Back, back then, it was just absolutely unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. So anyway, so that begs the question, Rob. What, how, how, what do you think before we go into it? Because I know you, you know nothing about the story whatsoever. How do you think that Nintendo gave up control of its games? Um, I'm going to guess they wanted to take a chance and regretted it, and they're never going to make that chance again. <laughs> you know, you might very well well be right because this these games are really cited when people talk about why Nintendo doesn't put games anywhere else. They're, they're actually often cited. So, all right. So here's the story and we're going to learn. This is actually a, a very big part of, of, of video game history, uh, which you're going to learn about in just a minute. Why? So, so in 1989, Nintendo and Sony announced a partnership in which they were going to develop a CD-ROM-based add-on for the Super NES. Now, this add-on was dubbed the Super NES or Famicom. You know, over there would be the Famicom. It was the Super NES CD-ROM system, or SNES CD. And the SNES CD was a platform that was planned to be launched as an add-on for the Super Nintendo, as well as in a hybrid console by Sony, which they called initially the Nintendo PlayStation. Oh. Oh. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, this whole platform was thanks to an engineer named Ken Kutaragi. Now, Ken Kutaragi is a pretty well-known name. He would later become the president and CEO of Sony Interactive Entertainment. But back here in 1989, he was really just an engineer who became interested in working with video games after he watched his daughter play games on their Nintendo Famicom system. After doing so, he purposefully took on a contract at Sony to develop hardware that would drive the audio of Nintendo's next big console, which was at the time the SNES. And this project was successful. The SNES does, in fact, use a Sony audio chip. Every SNES has a Sony audio chip. Wow! And and it was the six and it it was this success that created this partnership 
that would elite that would lead to development of a CD-ROM add-on. So didn't know that there was Sony and Nintendo, huh? I had no idea. Well, I mean, they weren't always they they weren't always at at one another. They weren't that this was before all that. Under this agreement, Sony was going to develop and retain control over what they called the Super Disc format, which basically meant that Nintendo was giving up control of the software licensing to Sony. And if there's anything that we've learned about Nintendo, and we learned it some episodes ago specifically, uh, when we were talking about Wisdom Tree and unlicensed Nintendo games, it's that Nintendo doesn't play nice when you cut into its software licensing money, right? Right. Do you remember what Nintendo did to Wisdom Tree when they started to nose in on this stuff? Uh, not not entirely, no. They basically told all the retailers, if you sell unlicensed games, we will stop selling you games. Oh, yeah, and, that's right. And, and that's that, why they went to the, and the that's uh, why, biblical oh, market. There you go, yes. And so in order to get around that, they started selling in Christian bookstores and became your biggest Christian video game publisher, so... On top of this, the agreement also stated that Sony was going to be the sole benefactor of licensing related to music and movies, which could also be, as we know, put on the CD-ROM format, because this was a market that Sony was aggressively pursuing. Now, you have to consider there was no... We know Sony is one of the biggest video game companies, if not the biggest at this point, right? Right. This There was no Sony gaming back then. This is not... Sony was a television company. They were... They were... Uh, they were in the... You know, the business of making movies. Like, movies and music was their thing. Video games were not whatsoever. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Now... I would hope so. You know, it's hard to think about nowadays because Sony is such a big player in in the video game market. But they, this is why. To be honest, we're learning about why these terms. The fact that Sony was basically going to benefit almost entirely from this agreement, they just didn't sit right with the Nintendo president at the time, who we've talked about a lot, uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi. The way he saw it. Sony had already been cutting into Nintendo's game profits with the audio chip that was found in every SNES. You know, Sony was the only provider of that audio chip and every developer that wanted to develop for the SNES had to pay Sony to license expensive development kits from them in order to utilize the audio functions on the chip. Okay. So Yamauchi was like, y'all are already dipping into our our stuff because of you know the audio chip and now you want to help us make this make this cd-rom format but you want all the profits you know you get the super cd format so you know where nintendo did it in the snes phase and they made every developer pay a licensing fee to manufacture cartridges for the nes that we learned in the wisdom tree episode here sony was going to flip the script and they basically wanted to be that to nintendo right right and so Nintendo's like, nah, you know, I, this just doesn't, this doesn't seem right. And so in order to create, to seek an alternative, you know, to this deal, because Nintendo still wanted to develop a CD-ROM add-on, they saw that as the future of, of everything. Uh, they reached out to who would, at the time, was one of Sony's biggest rivals in the CD-ROM market, who was Philips. And so Yamauchi sends his son-in-law... Uh, Nintendo of America president Minoru Arakawa to Phillips and negotiate another contract. Now we've been introduced to Arakawa before Arakawa is the person he was Nintendo of America president who placed a large order, uh, hinged his bets on a game called radar scope, brought them over to America and then nobody wanted them. And it was the decision of what to do with all those radar scope machines that led to the creation of Donkey Kong. Of course, we did an episode on Donkey Kong where you can learn all about it. Go check it out on our website, nomemorycardlane.com. Um, so Arakawa goes over to, Phil- to Phillips to negotiate another contract. And 
he was successful. There's no other way to put it. It was it was a coup, really. He 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 got what he wanted. And, and so everyone is here. It's the Con- Consumer Electronics Show, CES, biggest electronics show every year. I think now it's in January, but back then it was June, June of 1991. And at the CES, Sony announces its SNES compatible cartridge slash CD console. It had both options and they called it the PlayStation. Now the very next day, the very next day, Nintendo reveals its partnership with Philips at the show, which was a complete surprise to everyone in the audience, including Sony. Hmm. Now the two sides tried to reconcile. I mean, but that's a, that's a pretty big deal, right? Oh yeah, I'd say so. I mean, they basically like just swooped in right other them under them and said, you know, hey, screw you, screw you guys. I there's a there's a really good book called Game Over, that's kind of all about how how Japan. I think it's how Japan saved video games. Anyways, where the author basically wrote it was Nintendo's way of of telling Sony to gracefully fuck off, uh, which is you know kind of true if you think about it uh yeah i'd say so but yeah so sony and nintendo were not able to get past this it said that they they tried uh while they were working out the details there there is estimated to have been uh between one and 200 different designs and prototypes of snes cd rom console designed eventually they kind of got there in 1992 they reached a deal that allowed Sony to produce the SNES compatible hardware. Well, Nintendo got what they wanted, which was retaining control and profit over their games. Now, in case it's not really obvious, you know, and you don't know much about video games, the biggest selling console nowadays by the numbers is actually the Sony PlayStation. So it would go to it would it would if, if you you know you're following along it would kind of go that you could kind of put two and two together right now. They tried to fix this rift, but they didn't, and so Sony would eventually drop development of anything related to the SNES. They nixed the SNES CD project, and they refocused all the work they put onto on it into redeveloping this work into their own console which would later become known as the Sony PlayStation. And that there is where that that rift that that's where the rift between Nintendo and Sony started, the one that blossomed into the console wars, you know, for those two that has that, that literally in a lot of ways it still exists to this day. So Nintendo created one of their own greatest enemies. They literally created their greatest enemy. It, it literally created their greatest enemy because they they didn't like the terms of a contract and they thought they could get one over on it on them. And and I mean, let's be honest, they didn't. Everyone got one over on them, you know. Absolutely. Uh, I I mean we you know there are a couple things that we can talk about and we'll probably talk about this again because i imagine someday we'll talk about the playstation itself and this is the history of the playstation so (laughs) chances are i'll tell the story again but you know nintendo abandoned optical drives completely you know this the their next big system was the n64 which is cartridge based and then after that became the gamecube and that's you know gamecube is when they adopted optical discs and, and yeah, I mean, they never, they never really had a foothold in in the console market. I mean, arguably, since I don't, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are there are months where the Switch has been has outsold the other other consoles, but in general, if I'm not mistaken, and you look at the numbers, uh, the PlayStation has outsold. It, it pretty much outsells everybody. So. Which is weird to me because I'm, you know, we're, I think you're the same way. We're Xbox. We're, we lean towards Xbox personally. Um, would you say you lean towards Xbox? In the past, definitely. Although now with Game Pass having majority, if not all games on PC as well, 
there's not really much of a point in getting the new Xbox. Oh no, I know. No, I agree. We're we're in, we're PC gamers first and foremost. I'm not even arguing that. But I think when it comes to choosing a console, if I was gonna buy one or the other, I would almost always buy the Xbox first personally. Well, that's what I'm. <clears throat> that's all I'm saying is that in the past, when that was the only way to get exclusive titles, I would uh, absolutely have done that. But now that it's not the only way, I'd rather get a PlayStation and have that be my console. Right. So what you're saying is you're going to play the Xbox titles as a PC title and you'll buy a PlayStation instead. And yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That makes that makes sense. I'm following you. But I, just... I will say there that still I do lean more towards the Xbox games, but this way I get the best of both worlds. Yeah, but I, the argument still stands that we're more entrenched in the Microsoft Xbox ecosystem than the PlayStation one. So. Undoubtedly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's go back to Philips for a moment. We know that, you know, the SNES CD-ROM fell through and became the PlayStation, but how did Philips get into it? Basically, it was part of the coup. The contract that Nintendo negotiated with Philips in order to, to you know, put one over on Sony basically gave Philips the right to feature Nintendo characters in a number of games for its CDI device. Basically gave them licensing rights to Mario and to Zelda. So essentially what we're looking at is that Nintendo wanted to get at Sony so bad that they gave up the one thing, the one thing, the core of their essence, the one thing they had refused to give up before, which was their beloved characters and franchises. And the result of that is four games, three incredibly infamous Zelda games that we all would like to forget and the topic of today's discussion, which is Hotel Mario. So there you go. That's your Philips CDI and that's your, you know, that's, that's PlayStation history and so on and so forth. Very interesting so far. Did you know that story at all? Honestly, I did not know about any of that. You didn't know how the PlayStation came to be. Nope. Didn't I have an idea? Man, I've been keeping that story in my pocket for a long time. I think it's one of the more fascinating stories in video game history. No, it af- at that that absolutely is. Yeah, I always I always loved I love that story. It's 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 so cool how the PlayStation was created and it was basically like I mean just think if Nintendo hadn't screwed around, we may not have a PlayStation. We may literally have the Nintendo PlayStation. We could literally still have the Nintendo PlayStation, you know? Yeah. If Nintendo hadn't done this, Sony may have never become a big, you know, a big player in the in the in the video game industry is basically what I'm saying. Right on. So Nintendo gives up the licensing rights for some characters in its CDI games and Philips, for whatever reason, which is beyond me at this point. They didn't bother to consult with Nintendo at all about these projects. They didn't have to. That was the agreement licensing rights. But let's be honest, Rob, because you have a thing or two to say about this game. I, you didn't play it, right? You watched the video. You watched a video on it, a playthrough of it. Uh, I watched some of a playthrough, and then mostly watched the cutscenes. Okay. Yeah. It's really hard to believe that anyone who made this game actually played a Mario game. That's the end of the statement. It's really hard to believe that anyone who played this game actually played any other Mario game in their life. Yeah. You know, even worse than Phillips not consulting Nintendo at all. They handed these games off to inexperienced developers. You know, these the people who worked on these games didn't really do anything else. These are their claim to fames. So you've got what are arguably the biggest, some of the biggest faces in video game at the time, and you hand them off to a bunch of nobodies. It was a development studio, which was called the Phillips Fantasy Factory. And let me tell you about the Fantasy Factory. We know from interviews with the one of the artists, and, and she did go on to do a few other things, um, but we know from an interview with with her that most of the developers and testers were older. Uh, she noted that one of them was well past retirement age. Nice. 
Uh, in fact, one anecdote that has come to light since then is that they designed the game to play well for their testers, and then they sped it up to be an appropriate speed for children's reflexes. And so early on in the game's development, you know, it's noted that this game felt mechanical and was visually just no fun at all. And so what the art team decided to do is they wanted to use elements from Disney and Tolkien stories to enhance the visuals, to enhance the visual style. And, uh, and that's probably the best part of the game. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. The other thing that this game is pretty famous for are its cutscenes. These cutscenes were created by a Russian-American animation studio called Animation Magic. Animation Magic produced the animation on various titles, including all the Zelda games uh, that are on the CDI. Uh, a game called Chill Manor. Uh, Queen- King's Quest Seven, which is kind of well-known. Darby the Dragon... And eventually, eventually they were asked to work on the the animation for a Warcraft graphical point-and-click adventure game that was later canceled called Warcraft Adventures Lord of the Clans. Um, and honestly, oh. I, I don't know, Rob. I just, you really have to wonder what any of these people were thinking when they made this game. I don't think they were, Dave. I know, I know. Well... All right, so for those of you who don't know, and, and, you know, we'll put a Let's Play through on, if you want to check out what the heck we're talking about, on our website, www.memorycardlane.com. Just hit up the show notes for today's episode. But for those of you who don't know, Hotel Mario, you basically control either Mario or Luigi. And in the game, you search various hotels for Princess Toadstool, who has been kidnapped by Bowser. That's that's a normal Mario storyline. But unlike most Mario games, which I I find it hard to imagine that anyone out there doesn't know Mario at this point, but most Mario games are side-scrolling platform games. Hotel Mario is a puzzle video game. Now, I want to point out that this is not the first Mario puzzle game by any stretch of the imagination. By this point, in fact, I think four years earlier in 1990, we had Dr. Mario... Now, Dr. Mario was moderately successful. That's the one where the pills where you have to match up like three in a row. It's a ma- it's a three it's a threes matching game. Um, so I don't know. Maybe everyone thought that they could do something puzzle successful like like Dr. Mario. But this is not Dr. Mario. This is not even trying to be Dr. Mario. This is this is Hotel Mario, right? Yeah. And in this game. The goal to beat every level is to shut every door in the hotel. That's it. You shut all the doors. And you do so by using elevators to move up and down floors and avoid enemies to get to places to shut doors. That sounds really exciting, doesn't it? Oh, yes, indeed. Oh, so excited. Now, I mean, they umped the ante a little, Rob. They added some of Mario's traditional power-ups. I mean, there's a mushroom... That allows you to take more than one hit. There's a fire flower that lets you shoot fireballs. I think the star is in there. So you can get invincibility. So I mean. There you go. That's exciting. Uh, And you do this for seven hotels. With like ten stages between them. Or something like that. Now every hotel does have its own unique art style. Like I said. The art style is probably the best part of this game. They did do a really nice job giving each hotel its own identity. uh, So you don't have to go through seven similar looking hotels. And then when you get to the end of each hotel, there's a boss fight. I really wish there was more to this game. Uh, You know, I, I really wish there was more to this game, but that's it. That's what all the fuss is about. That's what all the fuss is about. Um, Now, Rob, you did tell me something before we just hit the record button you said that you tried to watch the walkthrough but you couldn't so you instead just defaulted to watching the cutscenes, right that is correct yeah i don't really blame you it's i don't really blame you the it's just i don't know it's not fun it's not fun it's not a dated thing as far as i'm concerned uh you know because sometimes you gotta take a step back and look at games through the eyes of a modern lens it, no 
this game's just not it's just it's i don't know I don't know. Maybe it's... it's better as you play it, but just looking from the mm-hmm. outside, having never played it, it's just door closing simulator. Yeah, no. Featuring Brooklyn Mario and his weird sounding brother. <laughs> we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, oh my god, we'll get to that in just a moment. I it's not fun. I played it. I, I mean, I didn't play it this time around, I'm not gonna lie. I have played it in the past. I've never enjoyed this game. It's to me, it's awful. That that's just it. To me, it's awful. I I can't. I can't. It's just not. It's not fun. It's not engaging. It's it's it plays awkwardly. You can like, and I guess you we're more sensitive to stuff like this nowadays. But you can tell that the game was designed one way, and then like they tweaked this the speed like. I don't know if any of you out there listen to podcasts by doing that, but I do sometimes like you can listen to a podcast at 1.25 speed or 1.5 speed or two times the speed. Uh, and that's kind of the way this game feels like it's like they designed it and then they just upped the speed to 1.5 and said, is this is good, but it just doesn't quite feel like it's right. Well, um, I mean, that's literally what they said they did. Oh, I know. I know, but it feels like it. So, but yeah, I, I don't know enough about how I feel about it. I've, I've got more to say, but we'll, we'll cover, come back to it in just a moment, Rob. Uh, how did other people feel about this? Am, am I alone in how I feel? Uh, I don't think so, Dave. So first up, we have Lawrence of Arcadia, who wrote a pro review for Hotel Mario and GamePro magazine. And he wrote, Bowser's at it again, making life hard for people in the Mushroom Kingdom. This time... He's taken over all the hotels and transformed them into his own private resorts. But excitement isn't a resident at the Hotel Mario. <laughs> That's a good line. It sure is. This game is as basic as Hoppin' Bob can get. As Mario, you take elevators to different parts of the hotels and close the doors. Yep. That's it. The only intriguing aspect of this game are the well-fashioned animated sequences between rounds, which give this game a subtle interactive feel. The graphics are top-notch in their illustration, but not in their presentation. The voiceovers in this animated sequences are crystal clear, but the excessively cute music gets annoying. The game is fun, but you'll soon be bored. Mario Maniacs might want to check out this Mushroom Kingdom even if they just end up watching the cartoons. All right, we'll strike one in my column. What else we got? Well, next up, we have Eric Nakamura, who wrote in the Ultimate Video Game Magazine that if you thought Mario was completely out of the picture, you're wrong. He's here and working. To rescue the princess, Mario needs to shut all of the doors on each of the floors in the seven hotels. But it's not easy. He has to jump and smoosh the evil Koopas and dodge the painful caterpillars. Hotel Mario plays like a strategy game disguised as a platform adventure. It's not as easy as it looks, so beware. You'll have to use your noodle to figure out how to slam the doors. This is a challenging Mario game. It's tough, and you'll burn the clock quickly. I don't know, that sounds like a paid chill for the game, if I'm not going to lie. I mean, it definitely has those vibes. (laughs) I I guess it's hard. I don't know. I guess it's hard. All right. What else we got? Well, Dave, enough with the critics. We're going to go on to who we really care to hear about the people. So from them, we have Ma on Moby Games, who writes that it's not all that bad, really. He elaborated that he expected this game to be a huge parking lot full of dinosaur shit, but was pleasantly surprised when it turned out to be quite decent and playable. That's very specific. A huge parking lot full of dinosaur shit. I mean, maybe Jurassic Park was big. I no, I mean, Mario and Yoshi. I, I'll give. Oh, them. yeah. OK, OK, that's fair. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give him that. But uh, still very specific. Indeed. So they continue saying it's a weird premise for a game, but Hotel Mario compensates by being really simple to play. The art is a definitive high point. The backgrounds are colorful and fun and drive home the visual theme for each hotel. However, the cutscenes are bad. Really, really bad. I won't describe them, he says. I'm trying to repress the memories. Just search YouTube for Hotel Mario cutscenes, sit back, relax, 
and wonder why you aren't doing something more productive with your time, like doing drugs or slashing car tires. In the end, he says that it isn't a game worth tracking down, but let's give it a decent legacy. It's not the worst game ever made for any platform. It hovers around average. That's true. I'll give him that. It's not the worst game ever. It's just not good by yeah, it, at least it's got the not the worst tag. I mean, there is at least one game out there with it. True, true enough. True enough. All right, what else we got? Next up, we have Gold Sonic on Game FAQs, who writes that Hotel Mario is considered to be the worst Mario game in existence. Well, believe it or not, this is not the worst Mario game in my opinion, they say. That doesn't mean it's good, though. Far from it, in fact. The story is so poorly written that it will make you laugh more than cry, and many have made YouTube poops of the game's cutscenes. For good reasons, I might add. The game gives you a taste of what's to come with a horribly choppy intro. The cutscenes feature characters that are poorly animated and pause every few seconds. They are so bad that they actually become enjoyable to watch and are the highlight of the whole game. But for all the wrong reasons. The in-game stuff isn't much better either, as everything lacks detail, and many backgrounds become very boring and repetitive after only a few minutes. Listen to the voice actors and try not to laugh. They are the worst voice actors I've heard in quite some time. They show no emotion, and because of the game's sad excuse for a script, they are just funny to hear. The music is, however, so bad that I can't listen to it without screaming. All in all, stay away. Far away. Watch the cutscenes on YouTube for some good laughs, and then never look back. Besides the humorous fail that this game has given us, nothing else good has come of it. I I don't know about that. We got the Sony PlayStation. I mean, yeah, that that's <laughs> that that's a fair point, Dave. You got me there. You, you got Gold Sonic, rather. You, yeah, you got a yeah. point. Yeah, we got the PlayStation, so move it on. What else we got? Uh, well, last up, Dave, we have 16-Bitter on Game FAQs, who writes that Phillips didn't create the worst Mario game of all time, and there's probably an audience for this sort of thing somewhere. Hotel Mario has Mario and Luigi again trying to rescue Princess Toadstool from Bowser and the Koopa Kids, this time by navigating through a series of hotels that apparently they apparently own and operate. The premise is stupid. That much, I can't admit. But it's not that much of a stretch compared to Mario's Time Machine or whatever. I liked that game. I have no idea what that is. But anyway, (laughs) strange premise aside, the game is at least aesthetically pleasing. While the familiar characters don't quite look right, the game is colorful and well animated with a fitting musical backdrop for each visually and mechanically diverse stage. Lots of classic Mario characters will make an appearance, many of which you don't see too often these days, And each hotel has its own gimmick, from the flickering lights of the Brick Hotel to the pesky clouds of the Sky Hotel. Whismical goofiness aside, the main problems I have with the game are the erratic difficulty and awkward control scheme. Levels will either be incredibly simple, i.e. pounce the enemies, close the door, piece of cake, or ruthlessly difficult, where doors will keep opening and you run out of time, or the screen is packed with enemies and you die from navigating it. The crudely animated cutscenes, with crudely delivered voice acting, that were one of the touted CDI features are another common subject for criticism of this game. But honestly, they aren't that big of a deal. While they pale in comparison to any players that had been spoiled by the animated series, the Super Mario Super Show, it's still kind of neat to see Mario and Luigi quip back and forth as they travel between hotels. They're actually kind of funny in a B-movie way, though players that find them repugnant can easily skip them too. Not sure why this is one of the main things players bring up. Ultimately, control and demanding difficulty aside, the main problem with this game is that it just isn't that much fun. Mario evolved out of the single screen action games nearly a decade earlier. And when he goes back, see also Mario Clash, it just isn't nearly as entertaining anymore. Alright, so look, let's... um. Let's talk about those cutscenes because I every one of those reviews talked about those cutscenes. That they did. Then there's you, something to talk about. You, you watched all the cutscenes, huh? Uh, I, I, 
I had them on and yeah. they weren't very interesting. And you you made a comment earlier about it being Brooklyn Mario. Heck yeah, he sounded like he was from Brooklyn. <laughs> Have you ever seen the cartoon that guy referenced the Super Mario Super Show? Uh, I don't remember. I mean, maybe it was a cartoon. Doesn't it start out with them as plumbers and they go into the pipe and it becomes the cartoon? Yeah, that's essentially... And they were plumbers in Brooklyn. They were plumbers in Brooklyn. Yeah, Um, exactly. So, I do know what you're referencing. It was not that good. (laughs) Well, also, the Super Mario... The Super Mario Super Show has, um... Lou Albano as Mario, who is... (laughs) He's... He's a wrestler. Um, he's a wrestler, and he was gruff too. But uh, <sighs> all right, so these cutscenes are ludicrous. Mario has a really deep, gruff voice. He, he does sound like he's from Brooklyn, and it—I hear it referred to as menacing. His voice is menacing. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I can hear it. And like the stuff they say is just stupid mm-hmm. uh i'll give you some examples so right at the beginning of the, the game <clears throat> if you need instructions on how to get through the hotel check out the enclosed instruction book they literally tell you to check out the instruction book um but That's they're right, helpful though dave but they're right that like the quips between them are kind of fun like in the beginning, when they, you know, they they watch Princess Bow, Princess Bowser, <laughs> they they watch the Princess Toadstool get taken away by Bowser at a picnic, and so like Mario's like, nice of the princess to invite us over for a picnic at Luigi, and Luigi goes, I hope she made us lots of spaghetti. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, who are these people? Nice. Um, my favorite line in the game, so. In one of the hotels, it has power that goes in and out. And when they finally found out, Mario walks into a room and it's full of like 20 toasters all plugged in the outlets. And he goes, aha, here's the problem. Too many toasters. And you know what they say? All toasters toast toast. What? All toasters toast toast. I mean, he's he's not not wrong. wrong. Oh my god. All toasters toast toast. I mean Oh my god. And then when they come up to like cuz every hotel is run by a little one of the Koopalings, they come up to Wendy's uh Wendy's hotel and like Luigi's like, "Look, it's Wendy's hotel." And Mario's like, "Be careful when you pinch Wendy's pennies. They pinch back." And it's like, "What?" What does that even mean? <laughs> you know, like... I mean, apparently Mario's been uh, pinching Wendy's pin- pennies. What, I know. Get some pinchy-pinchy on. And they do stuff like this. Like, you know, they finish each other's sentences. Like, at one point Mario says, Remember, where there's smoke. And Luigi goes, There's fire. And it's just... It's it's ludicrous. It's... Honestly, so the, all the cutscenes... I'll, I'll post it on our website, www.memorycardlane.com. All the cutscenes are five minutes and 40 seconds, if I'm not mistaken. It's not a big investment. I mean, it's not going to improve your life by watching them. It might make it a little worse, but it's five minutes and 47 seconds. And I promise you, you, you if you even got this far in the episode, you've wasted more time listening to us talk. Uh, that That's the end of the statement. You've wasted time on worse things. So, but yeah. It's ridiculous. It it is. It's ridiculous. I'm not the only one who feels that way. It's not like modern audiences look back at this game any better. Everyone kind of doesn't like it. In 2008, IGN named Hotel Mario one of the ten worst Mario games. In in their article, they called it a zero star hotel. It's kind of <laughs> good. Uh, games radar has it on its list of worst games of all time. It's a top 50 list and it's 48. So it's not the worst worst, but it's on the list. There are thousands of hundreds of thousands of games, millions of games now, and it's 48 out of 50. And let's be honest nowadays, this, the hotel Mario is, it's more of a joke than an actual game. So go, go see what the jokes about. Go watch five minutes and 47 seconds of 
stupid cutscenes so you can see how ridiculous it is and how how uncomfortable Brooklyn here's the thing though all the 80s all of the anyone who says that is struggling because they're going to compare it to current Mario which is Charles Martinet you know that's that's Mario nowadays and that's who the it's a me Mario you know that's what we're used to nowadays but all the 80s depictions of Mario the Super Mario Brothers Super Show and the Super Mario Brothers movie because I don't know if you've ever seen it yet I know I've told you to watch it there's actually a motion picture Super Mario it's awful in all of them the Mario and Luigi were Brooklyn plumbers so I know that's where they got their inspiration from and I'm not entirely surprised that this is a depiction of Mario but I mean it is what it is you know what I mean right but yeah that's Hotel Mario. You can check in, but you never really check out. I thought that was California. Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Sorry. I got my hotels mixed up for a moment. Anyway, we talked about a lot of other episodes. So I just want to remind you that if you want to go and check out old episodes like the one on Wisdom Tree or the one on SimCity for instance, that we referenced earlier in this episode, you can do so by going to our website, which is www.memorycarlane.com. Also on our website, you can check out our biographies. You can see a calendar with a list of upcoming episodes where you could submit your own uh, memories of all of our games. And you can also find links to our Patreon and social media. I'm on Twitter as David is wrong. Rob hit us with that social media plug. I'm on twitch.tv, F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. Awesome. Well, here we are. And at the top, uh, we introduce you to the goal of our podcast. Every week, we talk about a game relevant to the current week of gaming history. Uh, In doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it takes from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy, and yeah we just want you to learn new things but as our commitment to teaching you we always admit that we learn things as well and we like to talk about it uh to do so we go round table and talk about our biggest takeaways so rob what's your big takeaway from this week i would have to say that nintendo created the playstation yeah can you imagine a, a nintendo playstation I uh, no, I I cannot. Although to some degree, I guess that the SNES is an early variant on that because you know Sony card or audio. Uh, there weren't really any prototypes saved, save one. There's a picture of it on the Wikipedia. If you go to our website, check out the show notes. I'll link to it. If you're really curious, there actually is. It looks like a SNES that has the cartridge slot on top, but a CD-ROM drive in the front of it. So it's kind of interesting, kind of interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's see. Kinda like what a it... reverse version of the GameCube uh, with the GBA adapter. Yeah, essentially. That's that's a good point. Uh, what did I learn today? What did I learn? Yeah. Today? What did you learn, Dave? That's the important thing. I I've always known that the Nintendo PlayStation was a thing. Like that that's where the the CD the SNES CD ROM is where where we got the PlayStation from. But I really never paid too much attention to the specifics. It was fascinating to me to kind of dig in and learn about all the nuances between the 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 contracts and why Nintendo reached out to Philips and where the rift happened and everything. That was um I learned about that in a lot more detail than I had ever really learned before. And that was really fascinating to me. So right on. All right, Rob. Well, before I take it out of here, is there anything you'd like to add to today's episode? Um, yeah, yeah, I guess there is. What's that? Just want to take a moment to say thank you to everyone for listening. means a lot to us. That's it. That's it. Awesome. Well, I'm going to take it on out of here. So next week, we're going to look at a game that really popularized a specific genre of sports games and brought this specific type of sport game to the mainstream. These sport games were based around fast, action-packed gameplay and really exaggerated the realism of the sport. This concept would be later recreated in titles that we know, such as NFL Blitz and uh, MLB Slugfest. 
But the first game to really nail this formula was NBA Jam. So released for arcades in April of 1993, NBA Jam is a two-versus-two basketball game that was, in all honesty, one of the first really real playable basketball arcade games. So next week, we're going to look back at NBA Jam, including talking about how it was pitched to the NBA at a time where there weren't any licensed basketball games and how that all came to be. And we're going to talk about how that the game changed from the pitch to what it actually was. So I hope you'll join us again next week as we go all the way downtown on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Scooby-Doo-Bop-Bop-Bop-Boo-Wop-Boo-Wop-Bop-Bop-Bop-Bop-Bop-Bop-Bop-Bop-Bop-Bop-Bop-Bop-Bop-Bop-Bop-Bop